Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. It's hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On today's episode, I am going to talk about wine in art and how it's depicted. And I don't even know how to categorize what you're going to talk about. Oh, I'm going to talk about music that was written upon viewing art. That's about viewing art. About viewing art. Okay. But, okay. but it's about, yeah, but it's about going to an art show of very specific pieces of art. I didn't do my musical homework today. I didn't even give you a playlist. It's true. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as much as you'd like, or as little as $1 a month on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash scoresandpours. That is where you'll also find a playlist and a wine list that we feature today. And thanks to all the people who have become patrons recently. We're so grateful. And uh, also thanks to the folks who have bought themselves either a nice Scores and Pours hoodie or a nice Scores and Pours t-shirt. You can uh, find out how to pick one of those up on our Patreon page as well, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We'd highly recommend if you are not listening to us while you're driving or running or something of that nature, to sit down in front of your computer and actually look along with us as you listen to the works that we're going to talk about today because it's one of the times on Scores and Pours that we're referring to something extremely visual, um, and that'll really enhance the listening experience. Hello, Jill Mott, and happy birthday, by the way. Good day, Emily Reese. Thank you very much. Of course, it's your birthday on the day of recording, so by the time we post this, people will have no idea when your birthday is, and that's okay. It is okay. I just know I'm a Libra, and that's all that matters. (laughs) That is so totally all that matters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been the the phone has been like happily blowing up today. It's kind of it's kind of cute. That's always fun. Lots of like family and loved ones and stuff. Yeah, it's fun. It's kind of annoying to be looking at your phone that often, but let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. It's great to be wished a happy birthday. So thank you for that. (laughs) Of course. On today's show, I'm going to feature and and talk about. I love me some art. I love sculpture. I love books. I love, you name it, in art, there's really not a medium that I don't like. It was really hard to narrow down how to feature wine and being depicted in art. So I mostly stuck with mediums that people would know well, painting, sculpture, um, architecture. You know, I was going to get into music, but then I was like, well, we're, we're already you already got the music covered. <laughs> I was going to get into poetry I was like, you know, that could be a whole literature, could be a whole ep- other episode. So yeah. these are we're going to talk about wine and v- either in visual art or or being inspired, um, art being inspired by wine. It's oh, kind of cool. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to talk about a piece by a Russian composer who had a very good friend who was an artist. And so uh, when the artist died at a young age, the Russian composer paid tribute to some of the works of art by this uh, man and uh, put it in a big, long piano piece that then has become a really famous orchestral piece by uh, an interesting story of its own. So we're going to talk about a piece called Pictures at an Exhibition by Modest Mazorsky, which is a tough one to say. And wasn't Mazorsky like a... Bigger fellow that liked the bottle? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he's appropriate for many a reason here on Scores and Pours. Well, we should maybe have a cheers to Mr. Mazorsky. Mazorsky, yeah. Right now. Yeah, let's do it. I brought a wine today 
to celebrate. Not only it's my birthday, but I also um, wanted to bring something that I thought was, you know, hist- historical uh, because you know art is so such an important part of history. Also with wine. Wine is such an important part of history, and they really go hand in hand. It was hard for me to try to decide what, like, how to go about electing the art. Like, is wine just in it, or does wine tell a story? Or And I, I decided to stick with wine, or in some cases the subject, like Bacchus, the god of wine, the Roman god of wine, to be showing us a story that makes sense historically for the times and teaches one a lesson about the influence of wine at that time. Shall we? Yes, please. What do you got? So I brought uh, wine from the eastern part of Spain from a region called Alicante. So we're very close to Valencia, Paella country. Alicante is on the Mediterranean Sea. I chose a producer called Primitivo Quiles, who they make a lot of really cool wine in a very old school style. So for those of you who listened to our episode where we featured Lopez de Heredia and we talked about just that family, somewhat of a dynasty, and they have all these, you know, all the cellar space and all these barrels, long extended aging periods. Primitivo Quiles does that for, you know, their red wines, mostly made of a powerful grape in that area called Monastrel. Monastrel can also produce like $6 just terrible <laughs> quaffers that aren't even to be quaffed. You'll be drunk before you even, you know, smell them. <laughs> but this is a wine called Fondion, and Fondion is a, is a pretty historical wine. In this case, they're harvesting Monastrel, so it's a red grape, that can get pretty high in alcohol. They're allowing it to ferment to virtually dry, and they harvested these grapes really late, so October, November, so that they could be charged with sugar. And that means that as those yeasts keep feeding and feeding and feeding, they're producing more and more alcohol. So this, without being fortified, is a 16% alcohol wine. It's the Solera that it's aged in. So we have a blending system that is, there's some young wine in here, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, et cetera, but all the way up to wine from 1948 is when the Solera started. Incredible. Yeah, and they bottle it. This is their 2012 bottling. So, yeah, let's let's hit this stuff. Check out how dark this is. It's like brown. Yeah, it almost looks like a Malmsey Madeira. It's kind of got the color of like if a Tootsie pop was yeah. a Tootsie Roll was like actually no it is like a Tootsie Pop like a blue Tootsie Pop that was transparent because you can see through it yeah just smells so strong yeah there were literally two bottles that came to the state because I ordered them <laughs> <laughs> ordered like one or two for a restaurant and then one for moi happy Cheers. birthday thank you to scores and pours what do you think it smells like I think it smells like sherry it does kind of a little bit. I think to me it smells a little bit more like Madeira than sherry. It's it's I know what you mean about that oxidative, like an oloroso sherry, where it's kind of walnutty and yeah. nutty and yeah, almost nutty. a little bit like caramelized. Definitely for sure. caramelized, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to me it smells like a little bit of if caramel were put on top of freshly made toast and then someone like spread like an almond butter on the top, like a sprouted almond butter on the top or something. Yeah. What about the palate? Wow. It's dry as hell. It's very dry, but it's also super caramely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. From all that oxidation. Mm-hmm. I mean, this wine has been in barrel 
you know, for anywhere from 80 years to 10 years. I just can't get over the color of this. Yeah, so when wine is in a barrel and not moved around a lot, it oxidizes, and so it turns a red wine will mm-hmm. turn brown. Yeah. Just like a white wine would turn brown. And I love how dry it is. I love how full-bodied it is. I like how almost salty, ver- yeah. verging on salty, but mm-hmm. it tastes almost like I'm eating from a box of raisins, you know, yeah. but still being really refreshing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of dates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, dates. Mm-hmm. Let's get to some, maybe some music. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I figured I'd get a little wine in us so we can be inspired. I like that idea. So I'm going to talk about a piece by a Russian composer named Modest Mazorsky. And Modest Mazorsky lived from 1839 to 1881. A Russian composer, part of a group of five Russian composers who were very dedicated and uh, to a Russian sound, a Russian art, nationalism, patriotism, that kind of thing. Um, the mighty five. The mighty five, the mighty fistful sometimes, because they talk about a hand, right? Okay. Um, he wrote a piece uh, in honor of his friend, Victor Hartman, in 1874. Uh, Victor Hartman was an artist, a visual artist, a painter, and he would draw sketches. He did some costume design, uh, some architecture some things along those lines. And Victor Hartman and Modest Mazorsky were very good friends. And then Victor Hartman died uh, at age 39 of a brain aneurysm. And so he died in 1873. And then it was 1874, as I mentioned, that Mazorsky paid tribute to him with this big, giant solo piano piece called Pictures at an Exhibition. The structure of the piece is really cool because it starts with what Mazorsky calls a promenade or a promenade, and that is to symbolize a person walking through an art exhibit. And so you hear the promenade, and it's a very odd meter. You can't really feel it right, and Mazorsky said that's because it's to imitate walking. You're walking at a not a constant yeah, flow you're always as you're going through. Around. You're stopping yeah. around. You're stopping and maybe moving around people. Um, So that's reflected in the promenade, and the promenade also changes each time you hear it. You hear it a total of five times throughout the piece. Uh, In addition to those five little promenades, the promenades are very short, there are ten other movements, each of which is uh, either based off of a painting by Victor Hartman, a sketch, uh, maybe a a proposed architecture uh, design, something along those lines, and most of it is now lost. So, oh no, yeah, how what happened? Like, were they burned or were well, they purposely I mean, destroyed? Or it what? was the late 1800s in Russia, so yeah, okay. all kinds of things happened, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, it just it just all got dispersed, dispersed in various uh, air, um, directions. Oh, and devastating, yeah, super big bummer. Uh, Mazorsky had some of the paintings, which is nice, so um, we do have a couple of those that are depicted in in the piece. But in any event, uh, let's just go ahead and hear the very first two. So we'll hear the promenade, which starts everything out. And then we will hear uh, a movement called Gnome, which was a design that Victor Hartman did of a nutcracker. Yes. Here is the opening of the piano version. Which oh, we'll- I like this guy. This guy's great. This little pianist. This is what I, who I was listening to today. Oh, I good. listened to a little bit of it, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, we're going to listen to a pianist named Evgeny Kissin. Uh, we'll hear, uh, just as I mentioned, the promenade and then the first, uh, the first movement called the gnome.
sounds like it's in a meter, but is oh, it, it is. Or it's but it doesn't sound as ambly as I thought it was going to sound. Oh, okay, yeah, it's um, and I didn't mean to mislead, but it basically goes back and forth between five and six beats in each measure. Oh, okay, so okay. it's just not a cons- It's what we would call mixed meter. Okay, yeah. Next time I go to the MIA here in Minneapolis, which I don't know when that'll be, um, but I think I'll put this on when I walk in, mm-hmm. see what yeah. it feels like. So this is the gnome. So this, again, we don't know what this looks like. This is one of the sketches that's lost, but this was a sketch for a nutcracker mischievous. I mean, it obviously sounds like when I crack my walnuts in the morning. (laughs) And see, this kind of goes, almost goes back to the tone poem idea, right? Like if you hear this on the radio, you might turn it off because it doesn't, you're not really humming along to it, you know, but if you know that what is going on or what's meant to be the subject, it's a lot more interesting. Oh, it's so much more interesting. And I mean, this piece overall really is, it's not a very bright and happy piece. I mean, there's some dark, there are some definitely loads and loads of bright moments and stuff, but there's some really heavy movements as well. And it's tremendously virtuosic, like not just any piano player can play this piece. It's really difficult. So there's a lot of showcasing as well. And um, yeah, it's a cool piece. So super cool. Yeah. Anyway. Well, so to, I guess walk along the path that that is the art museum. The way I'm going to attack this here is I'm going to talk about a piece of art, mention it. We'll have a link up online to just a, any great place that, you, that I think you could see the art because we obviously can't post art straight on our uh, Patreon page. That would be definitely not abiding by copyright rules in art. Um, But the first piece I wanted to talk about is a painting by Diego Velázquez, who was born in 1599 and passed away in 1660. And Diego Velázquez is probably one of the most well-known Spanish kind of golden age painters during that time. Um, He was incredible. He's probably most known for Las Las Meninas, which is hanging in the Prado in Madrid, but also he's really well known for for this work that is called I know of it as Los Borrachos, but the actual title is called El Triunfo de Bacchus or the Triumph of Bacchus. Um, Los Borrachos means the drunk ones. <laughs> and this was painted by Diego in 1628 to 29. I like how I say this is painted by Diego, like we're just homies <laughs> or something. Velázquez scholars think that this is one of his best paintings that talks about, you know, just how well he was working in, in the 1620s. But what we have here is a depiction of eight subjects, of which one of them is Bacchus, the, the Roman god of wine. He's obviously wearing the typical crown with grape leaves that Dionysus is known for wearing, and he's got um, something of like a, I can't tell if it's a satyr or if it's just a follower of his behind him, but he's kind of looking off into the distance at something we don't know. He's got these beautiful ruby red lips, and the cloth that's adorning him is very typical of, you know, 
it's obviously something that looks like a toga that's been ripped off. You yeah. Know? <laughs> um, and he's always depicted as being, or most of the time, Bacchus is depicted as being like with muscle tone, but slightly roly-poly, okay. just, just ever so slightly. And he, yes. he has that here. And around him, you have, what is it, two, four, six, seven borrachos, seven men that are drunk. And this is a really good depiction of the garb of the time. You know, these people are probably poor for the most part, except for the subject that's in the foreground. They all look like they've got sun-kissed skin, you know, that they're working hard outside. In one case, the gentleman that is closest to us and on the right, he's wearing this like long brown robe and his face looks like, you know, a little red. So mm -hmm. maybe he's either sunburnt or drinks too much. They're, all of their skin looks definitely weathered, too, like wrinkly. And they all look like they're kind of having a good time. The guy on the far right, he's kind of looking up at his friend but not really making eye contact because he's, Lord knows, he's wasted. The person that is the main subject besides Bacchus is a gentleman who's got like this big burly mustache. And he's looking at us with this face of kind of contentment, right? Like he maybe isn't as in the sauce as the buddy next to him. Yeah. He's holding this, it looks like white wine, which is kind of cool. Um, mm -hmm. It looks like he's like holding holding a certain color of yeah. wine in the 1500s. Yeah. But it's just a good depiction of like what the working class poor yeah. peasants looked like during that time. Bacchus usually did symbolize a sort of escape from reality. And wine was known for being like this escape of reality of that time in Europe, but especially in, in Spain. So you do find a lot of depictions of Bacchus and then people look like they're having just a jolly, jolly yeah. good time. Yeah, there's like friendship and fun in that painting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the guy who's in the foreground closest to us, he's but he's got like... What's really interesting is he decided to put him like under a tree. Diego Velázquez decided to put him under a tree and he's like kind of hunched over like he's already been, you know, anointed with his crown of grape leaves. And it, but mm -hmm. he also looks kind of like he's already maybe passed out, kind of slunched, slunched over. We can really only yeah. see his back and the side of his face. It's one of my favorite paintings um, from Velázquez that's, that's, I guess, more popular that most people have heard of in the art world. And I don't know, whenever I'm in the Prado, I always walk by. It's actually a quite, quite a big work. Neat. So, yeah, it's pretty. Well, cheers to that. Cheers to Los Borrachos. Vamos. Okay. Oh, that wine is salty. Mm -hmm. Fondion is a really rare style. Um, it's not made much much anymore. I've only really ever seen two producers in Spain that make one or that continue to make one. And this is the only one I've seen in the States. Doesn't mean there aren't more, but yeah, I, I feel like it, maybe one would have crossed my path. So I like it. It's hot. It makes my throat hot. I love the finishes. Mm -hmm. So lengthy. Oh, yeah. It takes forever to like... It's just caramely forever. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I like it. So after um, Mazorsky wrote the piece, he wrote it pretty quickly, pictures at an exhibition, but then he just never had it published. And he was kind of disorganized that way. He wasn't very good at getting his stuff published. So what happened is that after he died, a Russian, another Russian composer named Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov took the piano piece and tried to like clean it up for publication. So I think it was in pretty rough shape. There was probably a lot of edits and stuff. And so Rimsky-Korsakov like kind of did the best he could. And 
sent it off for publication, and there were just kind of a lot of mistakes and stuff in it, but that's what stuck anyway. And then a few decades after that, a French composer who we've talked about before, Maurice Ravel, took that piece, uh, took the piano piece, and orchestrated it. So that means he, you know, clearly he took a piano piece and made it for an, made orchestra. It for an orchestra. Was it in the 20s? 20s, right? okay. yeah, 1922. And this is far more popularly heard. I mean, this is one of the hits for orchestra. It's just one of the pieces that big orchestras do all around the world all the time. And it's really wonderful. So if you remember the promenade, uh, we'll just hear a moment of that for a second. And then let's just listen to how Ravel did it for the orchestra, but, you know, just for funsies. Sure. Yeah. So here's the promenade for piano again. And this is what it sounds like For in, orchestra? An, in an orchestra. Gosh, he sure captured that Russian feel. Oh, yeah. Like, that was that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, yeah. He did a good job orchestrating. It's beautiful orchestration, and um, I love both versions. There are slight differences since Ravel was going off of Rimsky-Korsakov's version of Mazorksky's work, so okay. there's some, some differences between that and what would become the final piano version. But they're still both amazing, and I love them both. We're just listening to the piano version today just because it's just a little easier to wrap your brain around, I think. It's yeah. just a little easier to digest. So, And that's how Mazorksky originally wrote it in the first place, which is another reason why I wanted to listen to the piano version. So let's just listen to um, a couple of the other movements here. Um, normally, uh, you would hear after the gnome, the nutcracker one, you'd hear the promenade again in a slightly varied uh, way. Um, he varies the promenade each of the five times you hear it. So then you'd hear the old castle. That piece of art is lost. So we're going to focus on the next piece of art that I wish wasn't lost because it's my favorite movement. <laughs> even though even though the art is lost, it was a painting that took place in the Tuileries Gardens outside of the Louvre, which I think is fun. And it was a painting of children fighting and playing outside in the Tuileries and their uh, nannies or nurses kind of scolding them and getting after them. And it's just a super fun little little piece. So even though the, the art is lost, let's uh, have a little listen to it. meandering kids that are getting scolded sometimes. Yeah. Well, I love that. Yeah. Tuileries. So great. So can we listen to one that is 
people can view? Yes. Like what? what is a yes. example at something? Oh, it's such a good example too. Okay. It's called Ballet of the Unhatched Chicks. Okay. The best part about this is that these were sketches of costumes that Victor Hartman did for a child's ballet called Ballet of the Unhatched Chicks. And it totally sounds like a bunch of kids bumbling around in Easter egg costumes. <laughs> and it's fantastic. I love it. Here we go. This All is right. uh, Ballet of the Unhatched Chicks. In the picture, I mean, they literally put these kids in egg costumes. And then they have bird helmets on, basically. And then they have some feathers adhered to their arms and legs. That all had to be comfortable in the 1800s. Yeah. (laughs) But I just love these little pictures of these little toddlers in these egg costumes. That's really cool. Yep. The next work I'm going to talk about is... uh, I I love this guy's work, and I dislike this guy's work. It depends on, obviously, which one it is. You know, some stuff gets really religious, but um, Titian was an amazing artist who lived um, earlier than Diego Velázquez. He lived from 1490 to 1576. And one of his most famous works is called Bacchus and Ariadne. Um, which was painted in the 15 early 1520s. And it's in the National Gallery of London, just like um, the Diego Velázquez, it's an oil on canvas. And what I love about it is it it's like the Los Borrachos times like 50. You just got a lot of shit. Go- it's like a shit show at a part, like a party, but There's in mythological times. So how the, the story goes, the myth goes of Bacchus and Ariadne, we have Theseus, who you can just barely make out his ship on the sea, just to the, I think it's just to the left of Ariadne. You can hardly make it out. And he's basically booking. He leaves her on the island of Naxos, which is literally kind of almost halfway between mainland Greece and mainland Turkey. And I think they had just come from Crete, or he had just come from Crete. Anyway, he leaves her there. She's either heartbroken in one myth, I think by Ovid, she's really heartbroken, and in another myth, she's just like downright pissed. (laughs) Well, who comes to fall in love with her but the god of Roman, god of wine, Bacchus? And so he's the main subject in this. He sees her in distress. He like haphazardly, you can tell he's wasted and he's probably going (laughs) to fall on his face. But he's like jumping off of a chariot that's being driven by cheetahs. That's (laughs) amazing. The cheetahs. The cheetahs are so good. Ariadne has something that's very classic Titian, which is this beautiful, intense red color that's always put somewhere and are almost always put somewhere in a Titian work. And then, you know, another hallmark is that really kind of light pink color of the mm. robe that Bacchus is not really wearing. He was maybe covering up. Maybe he's about <laughs> to flash her. I don't know. <laughs> but you see, this is just the moment that they make eye contact. And because they fall in love and they marry, Ariadne is a mortal. Bacchus is not. And Ariadne will perish, but in order to leave her legacy for everyone, that's what we see in the top left-hand corner with the constellation Corona Borealis. Yeah. The theory is after she perishes, 
he creates that constellation, calls it that, and she, you know, will live on forever. What's interesting is when we kind of dive deeper into this, so you've got someone that is on the in the foreground and the right who's like surrounded by snakes yeah or got snakes kind of you know wrapped around his leg wrapped around his arm his torso and that was a very famous uh, sculpture at the time that had just i think been recently found so he laced this very i don't even know what we could talk about in our time like the statue of liberty if it was mm-hmm. lost and we found the statue of liberty after it being like a myth that it existed yeah and we put it in a painting so okay. this is very, very people that know classic relics and sculpture would look at that and by the arm know that that's what that is being yeah. depicted so it's telling us about the time period without it really needing to be yeah with with a date attached you've got a satire who's like a woodland little god those are followers of Bacchus in the foreground center. Satyrs, I think, during Roman times had little goat feet. And in Greek times, they had, you know, the f- the feet of um, horse okay. horses. So you've got this little, like, he looks like a little cherub, but he's a little satire yeah. who's, you know, like, obviously drunk. He's dragging along w- with him, like, a head of a what appears to be, I th- I've... Read it's a cow, I've read it's a horse, I've read it's some other animal, but the fact that he's just dragging a head head. is kind of amazing. You've got a dog who is barking, apparently probably at Bacchus, Mm -hmm. for making this precarious move. The dog, they think, is the the person who commissioned the painting. That's a a newer addition, but that was the, the person's dog. And then to the left, we have another new addition that was like this... It's kind of like this lemon curd color robe that basically, if you think of the painting without that, there would be a need for something there to pop. What do you mean um, new edition, though? Like it was, you know, this work took like three years to make. Oh, okay. And that was one of the last things that was added. Okay. And it may have even been added after that by Titian. Okay. But um, something to add to like, he wasn't quite happy with it. Yeah, so yeah. he went and just yeah. kind of retweaked it. On that big, like bronze vessel is where if you focus in and magnify you can see that's Titian's signature oh cool his, like neat it's not even his signature it's like looks like it's been engraved okay. in the bronze vessel but it's yeah. his name neat. obviously that's about the size wine vessel i would need yeah. um <laughs> it's like a, a big cup for sure but you can see the similarities between bacchus and his skin tone and his body to the last painting yes and it just sh- depicts again it depicts the time. Mm-hmm. Love is happening. Debauchery is happening. Mm-hmm. We're reenacting a myth. And this work is really heavy because we're talking about a story and something that is two-dimensional. And this yeah. isn't a huge work either. This is probably, I'm just going to take a guess and say like four by four or something. Five by, okay. It's not huge. Yeah. But you have past and present and yeah. future all being depicted at once. And with a ton of subject matter, I just think it's really beautifully done, and I could look at it for hours, and especially if I have a glass of wine in hand. The colors are beautiful. Mm-hmm. The colors are absolutely beautiful. The way they're used is amazing, and I love it. And the depth, I mean, in the background, you have a you have like a seaport, a village. Mm-hmm. You have you know just that hidden, just that hidden little almost um, that ship, that vessel is like. If you didn't know 
the story, and this is where context also matters, right? I was told by one of my art professors in college that like every time you look at a painting or a sculpture, there's a story to be told. Like yeah. what is painted? Yeah. And what is the author of that painting trying to convey? Yeah. And like in this case, I just love the story. I love how it's depicted. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine it being done this way by anybody else. It's just like very Titian and very gorgeous. I love the lady jamming on the cymbals. Who's, she's like kind of in the middle next to Snake Guy. Oh, yeah. But my favorite part is the cheetahs looking at each other like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, what the How fuck? did we get here? <laughs> just the cheetah, the look on the cheetah's face. Because you the one isn't looking at you, but it's looking at the other one. And you can see the other one. And the other one's just like, dude, <laughs> What's going Let's on? Go. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you um if you kind of really hone in on all of the people on the right, like the followers of Bacchus and kind of yeah. his clan, and look at all their faces, I mean they're all like eight sheets to the wind. It's yeah, great, amazing. So the next movement that has art to it is actually chronologically next in the in the piece as it is, and it's uh called Samuel Goldberg and Shmulia. These are two paintings that Mussorgsky himself had. So those are actually still extant as well. And it's a painting of two different Jewish, uh, Polish Jews, one of whom is rich and one of whom is poor. And so the rich one, he's wearing a fur cap, and it's much more of a portrait, as though someone were going to commission an artist to make a portrait so it seems very formal and official. The picture of the poor Jewish man is of him basically sitting on sitting on the street. He's got a hat sitting next to him on top of a bag, and he's carrying a cane. I love this one because I love the man, the poor Jewish man, has just a shock of white hair and a kind of almost Santa-ish beard. He just has a very full beard. And he's wearing a red T-shirt. It's almost the only color in the whole painting. Yeah, and that it, like pops. Yeah. yeah, it really stands out. So these two paintings, um, again, Mussorgsky had in his uh, possession. And let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of it. So it basically just kind of goes back and forth between the two. Okay. So they're kind of, they're conversing. Yep. I'm just envisioning now that first part was sort of crass and coarse and maybe asking for money or maybe creating a scene or maybe just bumping into him heavy unhappiness or unwell sure sure yeah. and then privilege mhm and what that sounds like this in the orchestral version is a muted trumpet way up high
so next I'm going to talk about a piece of it's an it's a work of architecture um, for a very famous bodega or winery in Spain called Marques de Riscal. Marques de Riscal, they've been around since, they've been a bodega um, since the 1850s, 1860s. And the bodega was, you know, besides becoming a little bit more advanced in the technology department, the bodega itself really was quite unchanged until um, the middle part of last decade, when in 2006, Frank Gehry, who is is an American-Canadian architect, was commissioned to build, design and build this addition onto the bodega that is like, it's a hotel, it's interactive, there's a spa, and it's owned by Marques de Riscal, but also the Marriott chain. It's in El Ciego, which is a village um, outside of Logroño, outside of the capital in La Rioja. And what's interesting about this, I personally think it's kind of cool, but also think it's really ugly, like it's not my style of architecture. Mm-hmm. If anybody knows Frank O'Gary, um, who was born in 1929 and know his work well, like he did the Guggenheim in Bilbao. He did the Wiseman Museum here in Minneapolis. He's always using, I think it's titanium and stainless steel to create these beautiful undulating like motifs and slabs that work their way around. And usually they're, they're very modern. In this case, it's not an exception, it's that way, but he's using different colors inspired by wine. So the one that's most obvious is this sort of fuchsia-looking color that is meant to represent the red wine of not only Rioja, but Marques de Riscal, which I think it's pink. Yeah. Fuchsia, it's not... Yeah, it's not very it's red. It's not red winey, it's, it's but... It's pretty fuchsia-y, yeah, I, yeah. There is, so then the silver is meant to be like the foil on the the top of Marques de Riscal is usually like a silver colored foil that, you know, protects the cork from oxidizing quicker or drying out quicker, I should say, the wine oxidizing faster. And then the little gold, undulating gold is meant to symbolize like Marques de Riscal, they're known for having this really ridiculous and not ecologically friendly gold netting that's like very light and just around a lot of their bottles. And so that's meant to like replicate or not replicate, but resemble that. And I don't know, it's an interesting piece of work that's been around for now 15-ish years. And I don't know, what do you think of it? I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes me wish I had like a carpet to slide down. It looks like it'd be super fun to like yeah, slide that would down be the building. Cool. <laughs> if you look at the rooms, the rooms look really fun. Like I'd love to be able to afford to stay there. It's like I think it starts at 250, 300 euros a night and wow. I've seen yeah. as much as 500 plus and that's mm-hmm. not including like any spa treatments or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's cool. It's very, I've heard it's very interactive. For You can learn a lot about wine if you're just going there to sleep and enjoy a luxurious setting. Mm-hmm. You can also learn a lot about wine, which is which is a really different way to think about architecture. Yeah, no kidding. It's cool. Looking at it at night too, like I'd urge you to look at some night f- images of it too because it just looks incredibly different. You know, it d- sure. doesn't look... It's sort of like without being as cool as the Alhambra. It's like the Alhambra of the north. Like it just kind of sticks out against a backdrop of like mountains and just looks strange. Cool. In a cool way. Nice. So the last three movements have art, which is great. And uh, one is about the catacombs and depicts kind of uh, people getting like almost like a tour 
underneath Paris in Paris. It's very eerie and it sounds eerie too. Let's listen to a little bit of it. All right. Well, I should take a sip of wine because I'm kind of scared. Yeah. Like, if you're looking at this, you do see the images of the skulls. Yeah, you can see the skulls. It's crazy. And the lantern. Mm-hmm. I and like this- how this this wine is kind of, this fondion is, there's nothing not complicated and there's nothing happy slash jovial yeah. about this wine. Yeah, I shouldn't say happy, but jovial. It's, it's heavy, yeah. And it actually pairs well with the music. And the image. Yep, even the color. Could have been painted with this wine. So this catacombs movement is kind of in two distinct parts. And so, especially on piano versions, you'll see it separated into two movements. The next movement that has art is deals with Baba Yaga, and Baba Yaga is a mythical creature. You know, she's she walks around on chicken legs, and this was a drawing that Victor Hartman did of the hut that Baba Yaga lives in, but that it's a clock on chicken legs. So the hut it looks like a really intricate. Uh, cuckoo clock, really, but it's just a clock with chicken feet, <laughs> and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's called Baba Yaga's Hut, or the Hut on Hen's Leg, or just Baba Yaga. Depends kind of on who's naming the movement, but hmm. in any event, let's listen to the Hut on Hen's Legs. It's like, go, 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 yeah. go, 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 go. <laughs> go, go! <laughs> You're late. <laughs> it's intense. I like it, though. I mean, oh, it's, it's intricate. So like that yeah. looks very intricate, you know? Yep. And we'll save the last movement for last. What, what more you got? Sounds good. I've got two more, and they're, um, they actually were in the same exhibition in the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. So I was going to talk about something Egyptian, a really cool relief that was painted, that was found, but I'll save that for next time because it, what I, how I wanted to speak about it because we, through all of these two-dimensional works, we get an idea of like wine is being used for something or what was the culture of wine during a time period perhaps, right? And so this is, um, what we're looking at now is a, basically it's a photo mural 
that was done by Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro. They're a design studio out of New York that they do everything from installation, digital media, they do architecture work, and they produced this because the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art was doing an entire exhibition on modern wine from 1976 to now, what they were considering modern. And what happened in 1976 that was... Featured in a film that that we both have seen. That was the time that the U.S. beat out France in all those wine competitions and the year I was born and the bicentennial of the United States of America. Thank you. Okay. So, yes, (laughs) you are correct on all matters, of course, but specifically to this piece, this is The Judgment of Paris um, in photomural form. And it's obviously their take on it. And it is, you know, the people that we see in here are actors. And it just shows a very different depiction than, say, Bacchus and Ariadne (laughs) or, you know, Los Borrachos. Here you have very sophisticated people with spit buckets, Mm -hmm. sophisticated palates, judging wine. They're looking at the wine. You know, we very rarely see that in ancient art. People like looking at the wine, right? You see them drinking it. You see them making it a lot. You see them imbibing in it. But here you see, you know, people conversing. Also, of course, what they're wearing is very of the late 70s um, in comparison to, you know, what we saw in in the 1500s, 1600s Spain, say. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's a really interesting depiction of how far we've come and also, I, I guess, just pardon the expression, but how douchey wine some people think wine has become. I mean, yes. this is a perfect example of it. I think it's a really cool story, and I don't have oh, yeah. an opinion either way about the Judgment of Paris. I'm glad that the U.S. won at that time. That helped like launch and, and catapult our wine into in, here in the United States into a new frontier. At the same time, I don't really want to be those people. I'd kind it's, of maybe rather be hanging out with Bacchus and Ariadne yeah, exactly. and, then, like, and the cheetahs. <laughs> and the cheetahs, yes. <laughs> and snakes and stuff and yeah. the satires than uh, all these dudes, but maybe not. I mean, they're probably having some pretty awesome conversation, honestly. And There's a lady or two in there, but it's very monochromatic. Yeah, it is also. Yeah, the, you're right about the the color scheme. If if you check it out on online, it's very pretty. There are a couple pops of color, like there's some green on a woman's scarf and some mm-hmm. like red-orange red on a man's tie, but... Um, um, yeah, they, all they have is they all have a little piece of bread, mm-hmm. I think, on the table. So nothing, no food, very studious. The last image we'll look at is um, it's it's technically it's an installation more than it is a, an image. You can check it out on Nicolas Boulard, B-O-U-L-A-R-D's website. We'll include a link to it. But he also had an installation done in the same exhibition than the previous work I just spoke of. And this work is called... Nuancière finement boise or boisé, and it's basically showing the nuances that oak chips slash oak, but in this case chips, can render to wine. Both in flavor is obviously being demonstrated via color, right? Yeah. And so, which one of these, quote unquote, would you prefer, sort of thing? Or, or he's just maybe delivering it saying, hey, check this out. On the far left, you've got, let's see, three. Ten. Okay. Or 12. I mean, there's 12 bottles. So you got, on the left of 12 bottles, you've got a bottle of Chardonnay that has literally a couple oak chips, maybe one or two. The second one has two and so on and so forth. By the time we get to maybe the third to the 
to the far right, it's almost half full. Mm-hmm. And then the one on the far right, the final bottle, the 12th bottle, is completely full of wood chips. They progressively go from the far left with one or two oak chips. You're like at a very light gold color, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a really dark straw color. And when you get to the far right, you're getting almost the color that we have in the wine we're drinking today, mm-hmm. that Tootsie Pop, kind of the darker yeah. Tootsie Pop with the blue wrapping paper color, right? Like almost yeah, like Madeira-like. Yep. And it's made to be educational. I think it's made to be suggestive. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. And something I think that was unexpected for, it was created in 2007 and quite unexpected for a lot of people that were going into that exhibition in San Francisco. So I like it. And showing too, like, I mean, a culture of wine, like people are interested in that in a way that maybe in the 1800s, oak was made for storing and for flavor, it was used for wine. Yeah. But maybe people besides Thomas Jefferson and some connoisseurs like didn't care. Yeah. Now people that are just drinking wine that's 10 bucks would care about that. They'd be like, oh, cool. It's darker. <laughs> cool. It's not as dark, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's so, neat. Yeah. Super awesome. Just some interesting ways that wine or things that represent wine or very important parts of the culture and history of wine have come together to make uh, some things that are very beautiful to look at. The last movement of Pictures in an Exhibition is a drawing um, or a mock-up that, that the artist Victor Hartman did for a competition to have gates built at the entrance of the city of Kiev. He won the competition. The gates never got built for a million different reasons, but um, he, he won that competition. And so had construction gone through, these gates would literally be in the city of Kiev and you could see them, you know, yeah. hypothetically to this yeah. day, but not the case. Uh, so we just have this drawing left. Now, this final movement, if you're playing this in an orchestra, this is what we would call a blow. <laughs> oh, no. Because it's like long and loud, ki- kind of s- slow moving, but um, there's still motion. But it's just really intense and powerful. And I just remember as a trumpet player, I felt like I just had my trumpet on my face the whole time. It's ex- almost exhausting, but it's beautiful. And you can feel the power in the piano version as well. So let's listen to a little bit. This is, um, again, the translations mean that you can kind of call this movement a, a varying, uh, you know, grab bag of things, but often called the Great Gates of Kiev. Proud, very yeah. celebratory, stately. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Using as much of the range of the piano, just trying to get as many fingers in there. Mm-hmm. 
almost two. There, there are three bells um, that, if you're watching along with us and while you're listening, that almost sound like those were they're chiming. Yeah. You know? Yeah. One of the things, too, that uh, apparently that Victor Hartman would often do in his photos that or in his drawings that or paintings, he, he liked to put people in for scale. So you can see underneath the gates, he's got some horses and there are people standing next to one of the entrances so that you can really get a sense for the size. admiring the work of humanity and now it's just it's all you're looking at the other side it's just all big again yes Oh, well, this was not a, a light episode, nope. uh, that's for sure, but a very cool one. And I hope you enjoyed the different format because um, it is really hard to, obviously, if you're listening to this in your car on your way to work or something like that, we really appreciate it. We understand it's probably hard to, if you've never seen the works we talked about, um, to actually like fully grasp them. Yeah. Um, but we hope you go back home if you if that is the case and and check them out because yeah, it really is fun to listen along and look along with us. Yeah, it enriches the the listening or tasting experience, definitely. Happy birthday, Jill Mott. I hope you've had a great day and uh, here's to another year of Scores and Pours. Thanks a lot to Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with myself, Jill Mott, and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially and buy some merch at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We are also on Instagram at scoresandpours where you can DM us any questions or topics that you might want us to discuss. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by purchasing their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mont. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Jill.